it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. There was a story out of Chicago a couple weeks ago that I'm still processing because it's complicated and tragic. And to some extent, it feels like we're having the wrong conversation about it. The word of the week is hero. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Yeah. In Chicago, a 14-year-old boy shot and killed a man inside of a restaurant after that man attacked the 14-year-old's mother, whose name is Carlisha Hood. This case has drawn national attention, and it has caused a lot of debate and conversation. Initially, the 14-year-old and the mother were both charged with murder, but those charges were dropped following a quick review of the case. According to a legal analyst, Irv Miller for CBS2, criminal charges, let alone murder charges, should never have been approved in this case. Why? Here's what Miller said, and this is an exact quote. You have the right to use deadly force to stop that force against another person. And that's exactly what happened in this case. And that's exactly why the state's attorney's office dropped this case today. Now, let me tell you why that analysis surprised me, but also educated me. According to the court documents, Hood and 32-year-old Jeremy Brown got into an argument. And at some point, Hood texted her son, who she initially told to wait in the car while she got food to come help and to get her gun. Brown punched Hood multiple times. And after that, the 14-year-old pulled a handgun from his hoodie pocket and shot Brown in the back right there in the restaurant. Brown fled the store and Hood allegedly yelled at her son to kill Brown, resulting in the teenager pursuing Brown and firing additional shots. Brown was struck twice and ultimately died of his injuries. Now, I thought because Hood's son followed Brown out of the restaurant, that might constitute a charge. But now I have a clearer definition of what the law allows you to do in Illinois. So it makes sense why the charges were dropped. And by the way, Carlisha Hood is a licensed gun owner, and she is also now suing the city of Chicago and five police officers for false arrest and malicious prosecution because both Hood and her son were held without bail despite no criminal record before these charges were dropped. What Hood's son did is something unimaginable and brave, but is it unreasonable for me to also hate this for him at the same time? See, in this country, black children don't get to stay children for very long, especially black boys who are stigmatized as threats from a young age. In our culture, we sometimes force black boys to carry adult responsibilities and we're harsher with them than we should be because some of us believe we're protecting them by preparing them for the harsh realities of this world. So now we have a 14 year old who was forced to kill someone to protect his mother. And while everyone is praising him for being a hero, understandably so, all I can think about is the lasting trauma this child may be stuck with because this is another unfortunate example of a black boy having their boyhood taken from them. Hero, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week.
My guest today played 17 seasons in the NBA and won two NBA titles with two different teams. But both those teams had something very interesting in common. Both had LeBron James. But as impressive as his NBA career has been, what he's doing now is arguably just as impressive as what he did in the NBA, where he was also six man of the year. He was among the last crop of players to go from high school right to the NBA. And now at age 37, he is a sophomore at North Carolina A&T. And during his freshman year, he even earned a 4.0. He's also joined the school's golf team. Seriously, his story is one of the best in sports and just really, really inspiring. Coming up next on Jamel Hills Unbothered, J.R. Smith. JR, it is such a pleasure to have you on here as we were joking off air. Good to be with not only a fellow podcaster, but also a fellow golfer. Not nearly as good as you. I got a while to go before I get to <laughs> as good as you are. But we're going to definitely talk a, a little bit of golf because like you, I've become pretty obsessed with with playing. But before we get into that, before we get into this amazing Amazon series that you have out right now about your life, I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and that is... When did you become unbothered? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm a longtime fan, obviously. Um, but thank you for having me. Um, for me, when did I become unbothered? I think it, I, it was like earlier on when I was like probably like my second or third year in the NBA. That's when I really just started letting, you know, people say what they want and like, you know, different things in the media start coming out. And I really became like, you know, a part of like that cloth that really didn't give a shit, you know, whether whether you, it was a coach, whether it was somebody in the media, whether it be a fan. And I just started reacting how I wanted to oppose to how people just thought I, I was supposed to react. For me, it's probably one of the best decisions that I made because I've been able to persevere over so many different obstacles with just not, you know, being unbothered by anybody else. Now, that's a pretty amazing attitude to have at the time because you said, you know, about your second year in uh, in the league. And for those who don't know, who may not be familiar with their story, who are listening, you came to the NBA straight out of high school. So you couldn't have been 20 years old by the time you adopted uh, this this kind of attitude. But I want to talk about that transition, because here you are, 18, 19 year old. You're now in the locker room with grown men. You know, in their mid thirties, some got kids or early thirties. But you know, the professional life, as you know, is so much different than what you may have experienced in college, and certainly it's different from high school. Let's go through what that transition was like. I mean, you're 19 years old. You're in New Orleans. How did you process all that was happening at that time? I mean, it was hard for me because, like, I was going from a situation to where in high school, my my day was picked pretty much from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. My day was pretty much already regimented on what I was going to do. I went to a situation where I got an hour and a half, maybe an hour at practice, and you do whatever you want to do for the rest of the day. And I had so much time on my hands. I'm thinking when I get to the NBA, it's going to be so much hoop. It's going to be so much, you know, uh, basketball that I ain't going to have, you know, pretty much time. And it was the complete opposite. It was like I had too much time for everything else and not enough time to play basketball because that that's what my days was consist of. So from that aspect, it was it was drastic. And then going from hooping with dudes 
15, 16, 17, 18 to 35, 36, 37. And we have, pre- other than basketball, we have nothing in common. I got more in common with their kids than what I, what I do with them. And, you know, nobody really took the time to really understand that aspect of coming out of high school. Like, especially back then, it was a, they barely played rookies, let alone high school kids. Like that, just that dynamic of, you're coaching a kid opposed to coaching a man. And I look about it now, like three, four years ago when I was playing, I, the conversation was completely different between myself and, or, you know, a younger generational player opposed to a high school kid. Just the conversations was different. The, the being able to feel confident to go even have a conversation with my coach or the GM at the time was completely out of whack for me. You know, uh, for when I go from, a person like Coach Hurley, I'm the captain of a high school team, nonstop communication, whatever, whatever, to the low totem pole to a Byron Scott, who's way more Pat Riley stylish, his way or the highway, and very little communication with, within that dynamic. So for me, it's just like, damn, I go from having nonstop communication with my coach to barely being able to talk to my coach about anything, you know? For, so for me, that transition, it was hard, and that's where I, I got that unbothered, you know, really attitude. Cause once I dealt with Byron, I get to George. It was just like, you know what? <laughs> I can't win for losing anything I do. Anything I say is going to be looked at completely wrong. So I can't even like put too much weight into it. You know what I'm saying? So at, at that age, were you like living completely on your own? Did you bring some family, some boys like with you in New Orleans? So New Orleans, my first year, my dad lived with me and it was like a gift and a curse because I, I needed them to have somebody where it kept me stable. But at the same time, it was like, damn, there's two alphas in the house now, essentially. And then my mom was going back and forth because she had, I got younger brothers and sisters. So I'm feeling like I'm, I'm making the money, but I'm, at the time I'm sleeping in the guest room. My pops had the, the, uh, the primary suite in the house. And for me, it was like, I'm, I'm trying to find, find out who I am, find out who, like where I can go, where I can be. But he also seen that and like that the still childish version of me and was like, no, you still need time to grow up. And so my first year, it was my pops. My second year, it was me and my boy Mark. And then after my third, or after my second year, it was just me and mom. Did you and your pops, did y'all butt heads a lot that first year? Oh yeah, we definitely did. Cause my pops was already like controlling for me. Like growing up, I didn't go to parties. I didn't do nothing. Like I wasn't allowed to rip and run and none of that. So I felt like once I, they always told me, once you make your money, you can do what you want to do. You want you can. You know, my mom was that was my mom's favorite saying: Don't dribble that ball, in my house. You buy your own house, you can dribble the ball you want. And I used to go, literally go throughout the house dribbling the ball, everything. And I, I still had that attitude like. You always told me if once I make my bread, I can like I'm doing that. So like, let me do me. And fortunately, he 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 gave me uh, some reins where really hold like harness me in because I definitely wasn't ready and I wasn't understanding the, the money I was making and what I was spending and all of that. So it uh, it definitely helped me for sure. I remember um, years ago, Michael Vick gave an interview and I think he said like when he was first getting into the NFL, like he was so sort of naive and didn't know so much. Like he didn't even know how to write a check. Right. Now, granted, people don't do that anymore. Now, what were some of those like small life skills that you didn't know how to do that you had to learn how to do? 
Oh man, for me it was every, literally everything. Like, and, and it's still like kind of uncomfortable me with me like walking into the bank and asking them for my money. It's like I'm on. I'm still like I feel like I'm asking permission to start in in a sense. Like I didn't know how to write a check. I didn't even know how to like take the money out of the ATM. Like what to do, who to talk to. Like going to the banks, having general conversation with people who are at the hotel reception, like not even understanding like the con- what the concierge is. Like the concierge to help me, like yo, if I'm looking for whatever in the city or the restaurant or clothing, like they're there to help me, and I'm sitting here oblivious, like just you know, not even paying attention to that, and like trying to figure out, like walking around downtown Michigan Avenue, trying to figure out where Cheesecake Factory is, like where instead of just asking somebody at the front desk, you know what I'm saying? Like just little things like that, I I really wasn't privy to, and then I come from. A situation to where I'm at a prep school or my mom's is coming up washing clothes and stuff like that. I had to get a whole maid nanny situation for me. Like a grown ass man, I need a, I need a nanny for real. She got to clean, cook, like do it all. Cause I can't, I'm not cleaning nothing. I'm barely here. I'm, I don't even know how to wash my own clothes. This is going out the window. I ain't like, I would, I would not prepare for it at all. What was your welcome? to the NBA moment? It could have happened in the game or it could happen in practice where you were like, oh shit, okay, shit is real now. <laughs> oh man. I think going into training camp because like going into summer league, I'm thinking like, okay, this is about to be my first real sign to like pro pressure and material. Like like I'm playing against some dudes who really did it, whatever, whatever. And I go to summer league at the Pyramid in Long Beach and I had like, I think I was averaging like 20, 25. I'm sitting here like, this is what, nah, this can't be it. This is, is this easy? I get to training camp. And when I tell you, I was in a dog fight every day with David Wesley, Baron Davis, Darren Armstrong, just like doing some vet moves, like real live vet moves and was killing me. I'm sitting there like, damn, I might not be ready. Like, I, I probably should have went to Carolina. Like, this is, this is nothing. Like, I'm having success, like, certain plays or whatever. And they seen it, it was like, yo, he's going to be this, he's going to be that. But for me, at the time, I'm sitting there like, damn, like, how am I getting killed by him? And I want to go be like him. Like, how is this going? How is this going to work out? And, you know, fortunately, I gave it time. But, like, the first two, like, my training camp, my first two weeks was hell. And Byron Scott ran one of the toughest training camps ever. Like, the first... 40 minutes of the pra- of, of practice, you didn't even touch the ball. It was all running like Pat Riley style. And I was like, bro, there's no way. I could I could went to school for all this. Like, at least they paying me, but then. So what were some of your early, you got this NBA money. So what were some of your early, not so smart purchases <laughs> as, as an NBA youngster? <laughs> First of all, my jewelry was ridiculous. Like I had a chain that was big, just as big as my chest, and it was the dumbest thing I've. And people told me at the time, I'm like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And I look back at it now, it's like the dumbest thing I could have ever bought. It was literally a size of my tattoo. It had like King of New Jersey. It was a state of New Jersey outlined and everything. That's for sure, number one. How much did that run you? Thirty five thousand at the time. Okay. So that was, I mean, it was a lot for me as my on my rookie deal. Just the jewelry, I was like. My pops was like, man, you're going to regret it. You're going to go, I need that. Just the, it was just one of those things I think you, I had to get out. But, um, that I, I feel like 
I went to the Louis store and splurged. Like I was with Josh and Sebastian Telford, Josh Smith and Sebastian Telford. We in Vegas, and they had American Express cards, and I like ha- I had one, but my dad had it. I didn't have my own. I only had my bank card. So at the Louis store, I, I see we all same McDonald's class, high school, whatever, whatever. They going crazy in the store. I'm like, yo, damn, like. This was like I've never like I seen older vets do it, but I ain't never seen nobody my age coming in and really doing. I'm like, oh, this is all right, man. <laughs> I get a bunch of shit thinking I'm like, all right, yeah. Sure enough, the lady run my car. She's like, uh, uh-uh. uh. I was like, damn. And I literally had to put my shit back for real. Oh my god! And I was in the league, and I, I, I remember that moment. Word. Oh my god! How much shit did you bring to the register? <laughs> it was like twenty thousand. It was like I had bags, sunglasses, shoes. We had we then literally bought out the Louis store in Vegas. I, I remember that. And it was crazy because for us it was a big deal because we couldn't go out. We were still young. We could everybody else was going to the clubs at the at the tables or whatever. So our flex was like we going to buy the stores. And I couldn't even indulge in that part. I was messed up. Oh man, for real. Grow up in. I'm telling you, uh, that's why my grandmother used to say youth is wasted on the young. <laughs> nah, for real. Seriously. The things I used to be doing running around, I'll give me that time back. Just give me the time to keep the money. Just give me the time back. It's all about the time. Now, uh, you grew up, I mean, as you mentioned, you grew up in New Jersey. Um, and you went to, my understanding is that you when you went to predominantly white schools, going to those schools, what did that teach you about the dynamics of race? <sighs> It, it taught me early on that I wasn't like everybody else and everybody else didn't look at me like that. Like, it, like I learned very, like probably third or fourth grade that like I'm black, they're white, they're su- quote unquote superior or whatever else. And then like, it wasn't a situation for me. Like I felt comfortable in my own skin at times. Like a lot of the times when I was in school, I didn't feel comfortable because I knew that I was already being looked at a different way and it's crazy because i was i was in special ed my up until eighth grade and my special ed teacher was the baseball coach and baseball was like probably my best sport and to me the whole school like obviously the whole school is white so it was like three or four black kids in the school and i was like one of the i was the most athletic of all of us and I didn't play, I played, I hooped for the school team, but I didn't play baseball for that specific reason. Like, just because I knew the kids who was playing on that team. And I knew that my, the teacher that was the special ed teacher was the coach of the team. So if I made the team, it was because it was like a sympathy type of situation. But then if I was actually good enough, I probably wouldn't have been in the position to play because the, the way that the, the town was and this, like, it, it just wasn't favorable for me to be, the quote unquote King Griffey Jr. that I wanted to be. Like I wanted to play center field. I want to do this and that. And it just so ha- I want to wait to 24. And it just so happened if somebody else wanted to be King Griffey Jr. and this and that, he's going to have the better opportunity to do whatever it is that, you know what I mean? And he won't even got to let a game or be good enough to like it like I do. But it was just so much of that in my neighborhood was, or, or in that area. It was, it was crazy. Like Pop Warner football, we got all the talent, we fast and everything else. But out of nowhere, we on the line. And the kid who wanted to be Emmitt Smith or Troy Aikman or whatever, Jerry Rice, they playing those positions. Somebody who's actually good enough or capable to do it, that person's on the line if something just blocking for them, for their kids. You know what I'm saying? 
And my parents really like nipped that shit in the butt early because I was able, they pulled me out of that and took me to the hood and let me really rock with my cousins and people who was like people more like me. And it was literally just about if you can play or not. And once I got that down, it was just, it made it, when I came back to the other side, it was just that much easier because I'm playing for the pure love for the game again. Now, you, you mentioned you were in special education, and one of the things you have been uh, very candid about is how you navigated life uh, growing up with a learning disability. Was there a moment, or when did you realize that you did have a learning disability? I didn't realize it until probably like my junior year when I went to St. Benedict's. Nah, I can't say that. Like, cause I, I always had a trouble, I always had a problem with reading and, and like calculating math in my head. That was just never my thing. And when I would, every time I would read and the words, like ever since I was a kid, it was like that. So I always knew it was something up with me reading. But when I came to like comprehensions of, of certain things and how to, re- how I retain information, I didn't really understand that until probably like my junior year when my English teacher broke it down to me. Or what, like, what the difference between, like, how your uh, quote unquote normal functioning brain is, or somebody who has ADD or ADHD. And when when I finally understood that, it was just like, damn. And I didn't tell nobody. It was just like, I I knew to myself, I was just like, damn, I got that. You know what I'm saying? And and it's probably the other people who knew already, or like teachers or guidance counselors or whatever, whatever. But it was the first time where it really hit me, like, damn. Like, that's me. You know what I'm saying? And it was like, I went through a whole period, I would say, with like building layers and layers and layers on top of that to where I, I wouldn't feel that vulnerable about it ever again. You know, because everybody knows that went through school, there's always a stigma that's put on kids who are in special education. How did you cope with that stigma being put on you? I was embarrassed. I mean, it was hard because I like people make like again, like especially kids. Kids is cruel, you know. And like I, I, I know it now. It's not so much I think the person was individually messed up as an adult or whatever. But when I was a kid, I that shit was you get lunch table, you get picked on. You in the yard, you get picked on. Like you get knocked out. People talking about you, talking about how dumb you are, how stupid you is, and stuff like that. And that's like it played. It played a major effect on me because like I'm I was always the butt of the joke. I was always either the black kid or the dumb kid or something out of the sort to where I was being distanced from everybody else or showing me that I wasn't like everybody else. And for me I think a lot of the things where I get either in trouble now or to my success now is because of that. Because I'm able to I'm so used to it it doesn't affect me as as much as it would anybody else. You know what I'm saying? Like, and it's, it's, it's a gift and a curse that comes with that. I was talking to one of my brother's boys over there in Tel Aviv. He was like, man, you, you did this, you did that, you did that. And he was like, kind of like glorifying it. And I'm sitting here like, bro, that shit wasn't, that shit ain't funny. Like, that shit ain't cool. Like, I had real live blood, sweat, and tears that came from behind that shit. Like, that shit's not, like, something that I want to, like, even talk about or glorify to make it seem like it's just, it's something cool. And it's so much of that, but it's like, how do you 
express that without somebody sitting there, oh, you being overly sensitive or you doing this, you being that. Because we're in a we're in a position to where other people's tra- pains and traumas is funny to some people. To me, that's like some of the worst that you can do is ter- turn somebody else's pains and traumas into like just not even acknowledging it. But even when you do acknowledge it, it's funny. It's humorous. We call that creating boundaries. And a lot of people don't want to adhere to boundaries. Like they want to be able to say what they want to say and this and that. And and yeah, I, I guess I get that. But if somebody is telling you this is hurting me or this makes me feel vulnerable and you still continue to either ridicule them about it or you're not taking it as seriously, then to me that reflects poorly on you and not on the person that's telling you, hey, this is this is what's up with me. You know, that's why I found it so incredible that you decided to do this series, docu-series on Amazon, which is out now called Redefined, because that's kind of a perfect description. But in a way, I was thinking about it. It's not so perfect for you because, you know, how other people define you is not your problem. (laughs) And so maybe they're the ones, they needed the redefinition. You didn't really need that because you knew who you were. 100%. But let's talk about this series, which where you open your life up. And for those who are not familiar with your story, um, just to give them the sort of brief capsule, is at, in your mid-30s, you decided to go back to college and not just go back to college, go to North Carolina A&T, shout out to the Aggies, um, but also uh, to play golf, you know, for the Aggies as well. One, why did you want to open your life in this way for people to see you through this lens? I looked at it from a standpoint, like, I don't want nobody else to feel like I do. Like, I go through it like the way I did. Like, there's so much that I was, I wanted to know and wanted to ask, and I was afraid just because of people who looked at me certain types of ways or called me dumb or, and, and let that really play in my mind to where I don't know the things that I need to know or want to know. And I know there's plenty of dudes right now, either in the league or out the league or who, who touched, been in certain situations that I've had and never expressed the feelings that we've felt. And just off of pure being, you know, too proud or or just not feeling like somebody else is going to take you as serious or look at you differently. Like even my, my peers now, like I play with some of the dudes I play with. When I st- talk about some of the things I've talked about in the last couple of months, I see the way they look at me completely different than when they looked at me when before they even thought I had an actual problem. And they look at me like, damn, like, bro, I don't got the cooties or nothing. Like, bro, just because I think I'm I'm not privy to certain ways that I think the way the, everybody else is doesn't mean like I'm like it literally looks at you like he good like bro what like I'm the same dude like what are you talking about we just we just going over screens and calling out and everything it's the same person and like it's it's hard it's like really hard when you look when you people like you feel as though you cherish and love and care about look feel as though they look at you differently and not and and not quote unquote it, acceptance of the things you have going on and again like you said before that's something for more for them to deal with but it's still hard when you under like when you go through it when you built those relationships when you have those encounters and you know i, I feel for the like the younger generation because it's it's it's, it's not something that everybody want to talk about it's not something everybody want to hear like nowadays and you know, hear a lot in sports just from the older generations like Oh, the mental health is, is so overplayed. Like, bro, okay, even if you felt like that, how do you know if this person really is or isn't going through that? How do you judge that? 
You can't. So either roll with it or not. But at the end of the day, you can't just sit here and just be upset because it wasn't around when you were there. If anything, you should be happy that it got better to where it is now to where they can actually say something. Because a lot of people like us didn't make it out in, in, in positive situations. There's a lot of people who went the other way with alcohol abuse, abusing their family members, their women, like children. Like it's, it's so many different ways to go about it. And people only look at it like, oh, no, nah, it's only because it's a competitive state or it's about the sport. And it ain't like that. Mm. When you said that, you know, people, guys now kind of look at you like, oh, he's different. Do you think some of this is because you're evolving and they aren't? Honestly, I haven't really thought about it because I try to throw myself into continuously evolving. I don't really look at nobody else and see if they are or they aren't evolving because I'm so thrown into what I got going on. Like, it's hard for me to like, and it's, it, it was crazy because it was easier for me when I was hooping to do that. And I've, I've learned like, I've, I've, I've do so much now and I have so much on my plate. I don't really have time to think about nobody else and what they got going on. And that's what one thing I'm so appreciative for because in the, in that, in the field of which that entertainment bubble in a sense, like it's so much hate and, and it's nastiness and I don't know, I don't know what else to call it. Like it's just, it's not for me. And a lot of it is just like not even having to like be plugged in, but I could be on my phone and be around in the environment and immediately start thinking of like certain people who just don't bring bad energy. And for where I'm at right now, it's like I get so much positive feedback and so much positive things going. Like it's, it's so hard for me to even to go back in that state. Like a lot of people ask me if I want to play again. Like, I don't get me wrong. I love hooping, but like to me mentally to go back in that state of mind and that field is just so, it's not conducive for my health, my personal health. So I, I'm, I'm really focused on how can I continuously stay positive for as long as I can because this shit don't last. Happiness is, a, is, a, is literally a feeling just like sad is and everything else. So I'm trying to stay happy for as long as I can. <laughs> That's all I can focus on. And if I sit there and focus on everybody else, I'm not going to be happy. So even if you were presented with an opportunity to play in the NBA, are you saying you wouldn't play? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would play, no. I mean, I, I love the game and I love it at that, at that level. But for me personally, it's just not helpful to go back in that environment. Mm, okay. Well, I have a lot more to ask you about that, but we're going to take a quick break first uh, because I, I think that's that's fascinating uh, that you would say that. Granted, you have nothing left to prove. You won two rings. You've been uh, sixth man of the year. You, you had a, a wonderful career, but uh, I certainly want to pick up on that. But we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with J.R. Smith. I mentioned to J.R. Smith, my obsession these days is golf. I got me and my husband golfing lessons as a Christmas gift, and we started golfing in January. We play now whenever we can, which lately has been at least three or four times a week. But one particular week, while my husband was out of town for work, I went golfing without him. And I got a story to tell about something crazy I did on the golf course. And before I get into the story, let me give you this disclaimer. It was an accident, I swear. So, Peter. Don't come after me. One of our favorite courses to play is the Maggie Hathaway Golf Course in South Central L.A. In case you aren't familiar with the name Maggie Hathaway, she's a legend in Los Angeles. 
She was an activist, a blues singer, actress, sports writer, and a golfer. She also co-founded the NAACP Image Awards in 1967. Maggie Hathaway is a beautiful par three course, and most believe it's the only golf course in the country that's named after a black woman. Now, I was there on a gorgeous afternoon working on my raggedy ass short game. I was on the very first hole, which is just a little over 100 yards. And I had my trusty pitching wedge in my hand. And if you don't know what that is, it's not germane to the story. So don't worry about it. But it's a golf club that for me will allow me to strike the ball anywhere between 90 and 110 yards. Anyway, got in my stance, swung the club back, took a smooth strike that I was sure was going to land me right on the green, and then whack. But instead of watching my beautifully hit ball bounce on the green, I instead saw it collide with a bird. Feathers flew everywhere, and I saw that poor little bird just fall to the ground. I just gasped because I couldn't believe it. I killed a bird with my golf ball. I immediately looked behind me to see if anybody saw it, and thankfully nobody was there. I wasn't really sure what to do in that moment. It's a public course. So other than when you pay to play a round of golf or use the range, you're pretty much on your own. So I just walked to where my ball was, held up the Baptist finger and said a little prayer for the dead homie. And now back to more with J.R. Smith. So you were saying before the break that you didn't think being in an NBA environment would be the healthiest for you now you won the title with the Lakers in 2020 but before that you hadn't played in a in a couple years and even though you know you see where the league is moving toward what was always your skill set which is being able to shoot three-pointers being being a dynamic shooter out there that's where the league was going but that that gap in your career that came later why do you think that happened I think a lot of it was because of some of my things I've done in my younger years, I think a lot of it was like the stigma around my name that I'm not a team player or there's just I'm a wild card or I don't know my off the court antics or whatever. I don't think it was ever a question of my actual ability or my talent. I just think like at the, at that time, I feel like the league was trying to wean out just certain certain guys, especially if they were like good enough to wear. You got to pay them, but they're not, but and they, and you got to play them. You know, like it's, you can get low level contracts and, and get have guys playing 25, 30 minutes a game. It's just, it, it happens. Pretty much most of my career was like that. You can get a mid level deal or low level contract and just do the bulk of quote unquote the work. It's like the Lou Williams, the six men, the Jamal Crawfords and stuff like that. And it's, I feel as though it's a lot into the society of a version of it. Like there's, there's superstars and there's bottom guys. All the guys, the people that's in the middle, they hold too much weight. They got, they got too much either say or too much play. And especially when you get at somebody in my age, my, when I, my playing decreases, but my influence around the team is way higher. Dudes grew up watching me since they were, four or five years old. Just like I grew up watching the dudes I was playing with when I was in high school. I've been around 16 at the time, 16 years. So that kid that's 22, 23, he's seen me play the bulk of, especially if I'm, I'm playing in the playoffs. So I got a lot of influence over him opposed in the coaches. 
and the coach is sitting here telling him not to shoot this shot, not to shoot that shot. I'm telling him, no, you can shoot that shot. This is why he's really telling you that. And the coaches don't want to hear that. The GMs don't want to hear that. People around him don't want to see that you have an influence on a Taylor Horton Tucker who's who's a great player. You, you giving them the right information, but they just think, you know what? He might be telling him to rebel and not say this or that or that and put him put them at odds with either Taylor because I know how the actual game works within around the game around the actual game opposed to that me just being a quote unquote good vet and telling him, Oh no, don't ruffle no feathers, just do this, just do that, just do that and I'm not gonna do that. Like I'm gonna tell a kid straight up, like, listen, they gonna do this, they gonna do that, they're gonna I'm gonna tell you all the BS that they're gonna throw at you. I'm gonna tell you also how to counter and not get caught up in the system and how to make your bread. But they don't want to hear that from me. They want to Mike Miller, James Jones. They don't want J.R. Smith to tell them that. No. So it, what you're telling me is that there was this perception of you that you were somebody that might. It sounds like the perception was like that you were somebody that might not necessarily influence them the bad way, but you might actually empower them in a way that they don't like, that doesn't go wrong. A hundred percent. With the program that they're trying to run. Do you think most people would be surprised to know how political the NBA is? Yes. And it's, it, it's so shocking to me when people, when I hear people like, really? Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. It's amazing to me how people like can be so oblivious to certain things. Like, just like pure MV, let's say MVP votes and ratings and whatever. And you don't think that the what's going on around the world has an influence on who wins certain things. Like, let's be real. You don't think that just so, okay, we beefing with this country, whatever, whatever. You don't think they want to smooth it over and just like, yo, we got y'all, we got the, we got the head dude over here. He, he winning. He, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he's not good. I'm not saying that the people aren't great. I'm just saying a lot of influence has been like that. And if you look back, you want to backtrack to to Yao Ming's, to different people. It's like the, if you look at the global population of what's going on around the world, they cater to it. And, it's not, and I'm not saying it's wrong because it promotes the game and, and it, it, it does have a positive effect on the game, but we're just not going to sit here and act like it just don't happen. Though. Like that's that's just blasphemy. I mean, even beyond that, because I think what you're talking about is that because the NBA does want to be a global game, it is a global game that clearly when you do have a player like a Yao Ming or let's just bring it to today, Nikola Jokic, it's setting up your game to be international. International players have been a part of the NBA game for a long time. But when I say politics, I mean like more the dynamics and the hierarchies that are in the NBA, like you just pointed out something interesting, the fact that there are certain teams and certain organizations that only want certain types of vets like around their players because they're thinking about their wider influence about how they might think. You know, I said this about Colin Kaepernick before. Colin Kaepernick, part of the reason he's not in the NFL anymore, it's not necessarily about the protest. That's part of it. What they're worried about is his influence on other players because then they're going to start asking a lot of questions that they don't really want to answer or maybe start making demands for things that they don't want to give them. It creates a different dynamic, as you said, if a player is listening more to J.R. Smith or Colin Kaepernick, then they are listening to their own coach depending on what the setup is. And so when I asked you how surprised do you think most people would be to find that the NBA is dealing with these kind of dynamics in a league that is often has the perception of being 
super progressive, a big, a quote unquote black league, because obviously the influence of black players, I think people would be surprised that when they peel back the curtain, that there are some racial dynamics that are at play that are very similar to where we see in most workplaces in America. A hundred percent. People don't realize like even like the Emo Doka situation, because the parties were married and everything else, it's, it's wrong in, in a bigger sense. It's not the first time this happened. Why is this? The- oh, no, no, no. That is that is that is not the first time that that is not the first time that has happened. Not at all. And there's there was so much more happening there than people, I think, you know, realized. And, you know, I still don't think we know or will ever know what the full story is. But my my I was upset with how sloppy the Celtics handled that, because that is something to me that the way that became public should have never happened. And as a reporter, I know how things are revealed. Like, you know, when certain people report certain things in a certain way, who it came from and why. All right. And so there was a lot about that that I felt like did a lot of women in that organization a huge disservice. And that was something that should have always been kept internal. And I think there was a reason it wasn't kept internal because we know, as you said, other situations that are definitely kept internal that happened. A hundred percent. And it literally goes around the board with any and everything. Like I've seen guys like in a political sense, just the teams signing certain people just because to please a certain agent that can help with down the road situations and all types. Like you, it's the one like, why is, why did they just sign him? And people are like, ah, man, I don't even look twice about it. And it's just like, it's not the fact that this person is better than that person. It's just the fact that this person agent or this person's friend can help me in longer term as a GM, as a president, as a whatever. So you build those relationships within the game and then you realize like, okay, it's about 75 to 100 players in the league that shouldn't be there. Which is not good enough. And then you look at the relationships of it, it's just like, oh, that's political like like crazy. We used to talk about it all the time in, in the locker room. It's like, okay, especially in Cleveland, like we could just have a team meeting and out of nowhere it gets leaked that, oh, the Cavs had a team meeting. It's like, Who's like, what is, how? Okay. Okay. We see it's like, it's all, it's so political that people don't even realize it. And it's, it, it waters the game down. If you're on the inside of it, people on the outside thinking they drinking like uh, espresso, coffee, cat, like latte. And then people on the inside, like, bro, this is, this is tea with lemon. Like, bro, this is literally hot water. You know, you, you said that you, you consider your NBA career over. Do you have, plans to officially retire i have plans to officially retire when i can when i feel like i officially can't play anymore i feel like i feel like i can't run up and down the court and i can like when i really feel like i'm i can't hoop no more at that level i think that's when i'll retire now is that more of a mental thing because if you're saying to me that you don't think you want to play for an nba team but you're not going to retire until you feel like you can't play. Those seem to be like two competing thoughts right there. No, because I know I can still play. Like I know I, I, I can still do it. It's just a matter like for me, a lot of it just has to do with, is it healthy for me to do it? I know I can play, but is it healthy for me to go in that environment? I me go to Puerto Rico or do something like that. And I know I can do that easy and, and go be right back where I was at. But like to go back in the NBA setting, I gotta go literally 
watch GMs and presidents and the conditioning and strength conditioning coaches and trainers. And like, when I got to feel like those eyes are consistently watching me and now I got to, I got to literally almost alter my whole existence because what somebody else could possibly say or what like somebody, I could possibly rub somebody the wrong way. And for me, it's like, I'm very blunt with it. Like, if you got a problem with me, just tell me you got a problem with me. Don't make it seem like, oh, we cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole time you got problems with me. Like, that's my biggest thing about that. That whole world is it comes from a, a bunch of men who are indirect when I'm a very direct person. Like, I don't have time for you to, to sit here and make, make it seem like you like me or not. And you don't. And you continuously telling people that, that you don't. And it gets back to me. And then I come to you and say, yo, you don't like me? That's fine. Just say you don't like me. And you can't even do that. You can't even give me that respect. I, I, that, that's very hard for me to do. It's 75% of that in every organization. And that's at the head of it. Not even like people you just come through and passing that don't really have a say so on what's going on. There's people who literally judge how much you make, how much time you get, and all of that, but you can't even have a real conversation with me to tell me you you whether you like me or not. If you don't, why you got me here? So what's it like for you watching the NBA now? So much fun. I feel like a kid again watching it, honestly. Like I don't have a favorite team. I don't got like I don't I literally root for Brian and I love Jimmy. I root for certain players, but I, I enjoy the just watching it as a fan again. Now it's hard because I know the sets and I know where people people should be and stuff like that. So I'm probably kinda hard to watch the game with for my girl. But other than that, I just I enjoy it. I mean, do you do you I'm gonna use the word hurt here because as people who followed your career, there were incidents that people knew, you know, that you sort of did become the butt of the joke for. Obviously, everybody knows about what happens, what happened at the finals and, you know, the la- the the last minute situation with you and LeBron and that took place on, on the court that became a meme. And then there's, um, you know, the whole Hennessy bottle thing and Henny Jr., shirtless Jr. and all these things. You know, for a lot of people, that was an opportunity to make fun of you. How did you process that? Because these are things you're experiencing that are your life, right? That, you know, you make this mistake on the court, in the finals, biggest stage. That happened to you. I mean, anybody, who cares? Like, but, but still, people use that as an opportunity to take shots at you. The shirtless thing, that as well. Like, how were you processing those situations as everybody outside of that is getting their laugh on. It's hard because I grew that's the way I grew up. I grew up the butt of the joke. It's easy like when you mean like when I hear on the internet and shit like that, like because I don't really there's people I don't really know, people don't know me. But it's hard every day when I see people and I I gotta put on this like facade almost when people come up to me like, oh any guy, whatever, whatever I take a picture like bro for one, I'm not the Henny guy, da 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 da, whatever, whatever. And then, like, their whole energy changes. And it's like, I don't want to be an asshole, but if I'm sitting here telling you that, told multiple people, I don't like being called Henny guy, I don't, all that other, like, game one, this and that, like, especially the, like, the final shit, it hurts me more because this is a game that I love. It's a game I, I've, tra- I've treated with my passion since I was three years old. So when I get to 
everything that I've summed my career up to since I was three, all into one play. And this goes from Hall of Famers to people who just talk about the game, people who commentate the game. Like when you literally try to sum my career up into one play, that's the shit that hurts. You know what I'm saying? And, and it's hard for me to not want to like really go off. And I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's difficult because it's, it's so, again, it's just so much love and energy and effort that went into this. And like when you just get it discredited, that shit is just hard. And to set the record straight for people is that, you know, the whole Hennessy innocent, it wasn't even a bottle of Hennessy. Right. It was a bottle of champagne. You never drank out a Hennessy bottle. Never once. It was a bottle of champagne, right? You don't even drink Hennessy. Is that that's correct, right? Not at all. At all. I do not drink Hennessy. I am a uh, Jameson. I drink some Jameson, though. You know what I'm saying? Some Johnny Walker or something. But I don't. But it's cool. You know, it's it's crazy because like so many people, it's clickbait, and it's so easy to fall into it. And I try to make sure I don't fall into it. I think these days that people would probably define you as being pretty courageous because there's a lot of people who could have never gone back to college when you decided to go back to college and not only go back to college, but you got a 4.0 all right on top of that. One semester, I'm working back up. I kind of struggled this last semester, man. You did it once. That means you could do it again. That means you could do it again. I could do it again. So update us on your progress. You're a sophomore now at A&T, correct? Yeah, sophomore A&T. Well, I just finished my sophomore year. I'm going into the junior this now. So this, this semester is over for me. I'll be a junior coming to the fall. Now I got two more years left to get my degree. Slow rolling it. I was trying to get, I was funny. I was trying to accelerate it and try to graduate in three years and do all this other stuff. And I was like, man, let me, let me, let me slow walk this thing. This is, this is a lot of work. <laughs> There's a lot of papers. It's a lot of stuff hitting this day. Yeah, I was going to say, it. it is a lot of work. So how do you balance it with everything else that you have going on? You have a podcast, you got the series out, you have children, you have four daughters. I mean, how do you balance school? Four girls, man. Yeah. Fortunately, I got a tutor. So me and my tutor, we we go over our assignments and, and like handle it five days a week. I take three hours a day and really just chop it up in between what I got to do. Sometimes it's... Sometimes I'm, I'm literally on trigonometry for two hours. Sometimes I can be working on the paper for two hours, but I got five days a week where I literally just just go ham for three hours and just try to break it down like that. Because I was trying to hold, like my first year, uh, last year, I literally tried to do it like high school. Like I was at eight, eight to three, this is my block, and I'm going just like, and then I was literally getting burnt out because I went from not doing nothing to go locking in like I'm in the office or something. And almost like my brain was just literally crashed with information and I couldn't even, like it started affecting my golf game and I couldn't, still didn't anyway, but I couldn't like make the cut of the team just because I was so, like I was damn near seeing, uh, I was taking biology lab at the time and uh, this nutrition class. And that was like, literally had my mind going crazy. But now I got, I'm fortunately after this year, I'm going, I, all my prereqs is done. So I get straight into all my majors. And, uh, that's what I'm excited about though. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about the next two years because I really get to pick and choose what I really want to, the meat and potatoes of what I want to learn. 
how did you overcome that feeling of maybe being maybe intimidated or overwhelmed? Because I, I, I don't know how I would respond trying to go back to school at, at, at the age that I am. So how were you able to kind of get over that? It's as cliche as it is. I literally took it one day at a time. Like I remember the first day when I had uh, on classes, first hit my school email and everything. I had to do Zooms and stuff with my first tutor. I got another, I had got a new tutor since the first uh, since the episodes uh, came out, but it's literally one day at a time. Like I didn't know what to expect. I, I was so nervous. My I remember my palm was sweating. I got sweating my underarm. I'm on, I'm on uh, Zoom with my tutor, and I was just like. Okay, and it lasted like two, three hours, and that was it for the day. And I was just like, oh, "Okay, I could do this. If I got, if I do this, if I got do, if I got do this tomorrow, and then I do this the, the day after that, as long as I, I, I can do this." And I literally just one day after another. And I don't think people realize it. It's not as hard as as you think it is once you throw yourself into it. Like there's so many times, like jumping in the pool. If you just sit there, like. You just got to throw yourself in. And for me, like, I've always figured I've come out on top better in situations where I just jump in. Because if I, if I tiptoe my way in, I'm going to find so many different ways to get out of it or not even do it, opposed to actually just following through with the process. How much did you coming up and learning in predominantly white environments influence your decision to do an HBCU as an adult? It was the bulk of my uh, decision. I knew I, I knew for sure I wanted to l- learn from people who look like me. People because I felt like for one, there's nobody they're not gonna sugarcoat nothing. There's never gonna be a situation where I don't feel like they're going. They're not telling me the truth or being honest with me uh, over what over just pure basic knowledge. That even if I could, I could look it up on my own and and really like get the the true sentiment of it. It's not just some cliche that they read out of a book that they want me to just learn and, and and can you know can form my way of thinking um that eurocentric mindset is tough man it's a tough thing to break and for for me like i knew that's one thing i did not want to have uh going forward and it's it's harder because once you really understand it and you got kids it's like shit like I put my my kids behind an A ball. Now I got to deprogram y'all after like, <laughs> damn. You know, but it's like, for real, it's real. It's for real. I, I'm, but I'm on it. We on it. What was the impact on your golf game? Because now you're playing as a college golfer. Like, how did that help your game uh, or improve your game? Being around the, the younger generation, they're so helpful. They really want to see you do well and want to see you I mean, prosperous, not really like they're competitive, but they want you to be at your best and, and they still beat you like that type. And I, and, that, and stuff like that is honorable. I can respect that opposed to like when I was like when I was coming up in the league, like there's so many vet moves that dudes was doing on me and my, on my team that wouldn't even teach me. You know what I'm saying? Like it was just crazy to me. And I got this 16, 17 year old dude telling me how to hit little chip shots and look, like how to f- hit a uh, little cut chips and stuff i'm like damn like that's dope like i don't i don't remember being like that so who's the best golfer that's an nba player that you've played with um steph for sure steph okay i was wondering if you played with him steph played golf growing up 
like he played like he who <laughs> like he grew up in like country club like five six seven years old hitting swings and stuff like that so it was like for him it really translate and it's like damn i'm envious of that like if, if i had like golf opposed to baseball when i was growing up like man i'd have been all right <laughs> especially now like i'd have been to scratch too <laughs> have you beat him Nah, he's smoking. He's smoking. <laughs> he beat me by like 15 shots. <laughs> this was like, but this was like, we I, we first started playing. I think this was like a CP wedding in uh in Charlotte. I ain't played with him since though, but I'm, I, I can get him now though, for sure. Oh, you think you got him now? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I got him now. We're going to just set that match up next year for, uh, <laughs> it was the ASPN. TNT. Yeah, for TNT, the match. Uh, who's the NBA player you play golf with that talks a lot of shit, but their game ain't quite there yet for them to be talking the shit they talk? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Let me pick one. It's so many. <laughs> Jason Tatum be talking crazy. He be talking spicy like he liked that. He just started. I see Book and CP be arguing all the time. He don't really talk junk to me, but Book be talking smack. Willie Cauley Stein, his tall ass, he out there smacking the ball. He talking crazy. Grant Williams, he don't really talk too much. He, he He's always intrigued about the game, though. Kyle Lowry is always talking junk. Kyle and I, we played on the same AU team growing up, so we got old school rival beef with him. But he's – to be so short <laughs> – he he got a big old ass too. I love I love how to do He got that he his body is little That's my boy. He, he turned through the ball like yo, bro. You look like, like that's crazy. He hit the ball though. That's that's the funniest thing ever though. He he's so bad built. <laughs> Now you played with with Jordan. And everybody knows that Jordan liked to he liked to gamble on the course. So did you take him, or he, or did he take you? You know what? We pushed the first. We played what four times, maybe five times now, and we pushed almost every time except for twice, and he beat me. Mm. And it's always the second nine he beat me. I don't know what it is. Like the first nine, are we always even? We right there, neck and neck. And then the second nine, he always come back two, three shots. And it's like, it's always like one or two holes that I like just have a brain fart and he catch me. I'm like, damn, but I'm going to get his ass for sure. What's the most money you've lost to Jordan on a hole? I think 500. Oh, okay. That's not too bad. Nah, <laughs> hell nah. See, I, see, he got the, he got, he has games with, with, with people like myself. And then he got his games with his boys when the numbers is real crazy. I ain't getting in that one. I'm going to stay over here. I'm going to go ahead and bogey. Cool. <laughs> nah. he be over here five, ten thousand dollar putts and all this other shit. No, I ain't doing that. Nah, bro. I, I heard that. I don't even, I ain't even a member yet. <laughs> all right, well, JR, before I get you out of here, there's a game that I play with every guest that appears on the podcast. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. And you gotta pick one. All right. Allen Iverson or Kyrie Irving? Damn, you out the boat with it. Yeah, out the gate with it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Don't kill me, Chuck, but Kyrie. <laughs> Damn. Where would you rank Kyrie's handles in NBA history? One. 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 One, for sure. And, and definitely not two. 
Definitely. Okay. All right. Because, you know, my guy's Isaiah Thomas. So I still got Zeke one. I got Kyrie 1A, but I, I still think of Zeke personally. See, I've never seen Zeke do nothing really crazy handle-wise. I knew he had it on the string, but I've never, like, really seen him, like, I don't know. The creativeness is different when I see Kyrie. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, I definitely understand. I'm just 2,000 years old. I'm probably holding on and being from Detroit, but... It's, nah, I feel you. I respect you. Uh, all right. Uh, flats or drums? Oh, flats, for sure. <laughs> Kendrick or J. Cole? Cole. Being named Academic Athlete of the Year or winning Sixth Man of the Year? Uh, Sixth Man. Only because I got this, like, the look on my parents' face. My dad was a Knicks fan. I was a Bulls fan, but... One in the that at the garden that was like that was different. I hate to say it, yeah, six minutes. All right, and finally, would you rather make the PGA tour or sign with a championship ready NBA team that had the right environment for you? I'm playing the tour. Sign me <laughs> up, PGA tour for sure. <laughs> That was a little too easy. Uh, well, I know, listen, uh, one day, you never know. Like, the way you're keeping at it now, we may see you on the tour. Is that a goal of yours? Oh, for sure. I'm working for it. That's definitely a goal. Definitely a goal. I got, like, I got like five or six years before I really give it a go. But I just, I got, feel like I got to get the swings and compare it to some of these other dudes. 10,000 hours ain't there yet. Not yet? Okay. Like, I ain't got the 10,000 in. All right. I got you. Well, JR, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure. And I didn't do this at the top of the podcast, and I meant to, is I want to thank you for what you said about my book. That was really incredible. I have to say, like, I would not have expected you to read my book. And when you sent me that tweet letting me know that you'd listen to it and enjoyed it, that meant the world to me. And I think anybody who's an author, when you, um, especially if you put out a memoir, because you're putting out your life and you're putting out the most vulnerable parts of yourself. And when people tell you that they connected with it and they love it, yeah. it just, it's a kind of compliment that hits you in a much different way than for any other work that I do. So I thank you for saying that and for saying it publicly, which you obviously did not have to do. No, absolutely. It's funny. Cause when you were talking about you, you and your mother's relationship and some of the things that she would tell you, it's a lot of things like that. What my mom would tell me about it. Boy, just be, just be quiet and just 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 do what you're supposed to be doing. Don't don't get in no trouble type situation. It's like and I, when I heard it, and it's just like finally somebody I can hear somebody else's mom talking to them. Like they spike my mom be talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> I sit here I was like it is not that they mean no harm or nothing like that. It's just that they want the best for you. And I was just like, damn. And it's funny, my girl was like, she we she's really in the audio book, and she, we was driving from L.A. to. Florida, and she was like, "You want to listen to Jamel?" I was like, "Hell yeah!" I, matter of fact, yeah. and she put it on, and it was really good. Though. I appreciate the listen for sure. Well, thank her too as well, and uh, for everybody out there, make sure that you check out his docu series, Redefined. It's on Amazon. It's really incredible. It takes you through your journey as a student athlete, <laughs> right? I'm sure a title you never you never thought you were going to wear. But yeah. as a student athlete, I think it's honestly also a great commercial for HBCUs because, you know, all the, the scenes from campus, homecoming, all of that graduation. Like, it's just a really, really good, good series. And I'm sure you know about Cookout now that you have been to A&T. <laughs> you know what's funny? I had this conversation with somebody the other day. I've never eaten there because the line is so long all day long i'm sitting here like well, are they giving away food How, what is going on it was through the light one time I'm like what 
Bojangles is my spot though. I ain't gonna lie. I, I like Bojangles. I, I still gonna put them beneath uh, Popeyes, but yo, them breakfast biscuits, woof, that sweet tea. Ooh wee, going. Yeah, it's just the bowberry biscuits. That's my ooh wee. The bowberry biscuits. I know, I know. They kind of undefeated. Anyway, Jr. Again, thank you for joining me. Uh, good luck with uh, your golf game, and most importantly, everybody can't wait to see when you graduate. So uh, he's getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Longtime Wheel of Fortune host Passe Jack recently announced that next season will be his last as host. And soon after, the news broke that Ryan Seacrest will replace Sajak, who has hosted the show since 1981. But there was another bombshell that dropped about the show after the Sajak and Seacrest news that has me fucking bothered. Vanna White, the famous letter turner who has been part of the show since 1982, hasn't received a raise in 18 years. And with Sajak's departure, she is now lawyered up to negotiate a new deal that will keep her on the show past the 2023-24 season. Now, Vanna White is reportedly earning $3 million a year. And I'm bothered that so many people think just because you make a certain amount of money that you should not fight for what you're worth, especially if you're a woman. Pat Sajak reportedly is making $15 million a year. And I'm not saying that him and Vanna White should be making the same. Though you could argue she was more popular than him because I'm old enough to remember Vanna White being a naked gun, doing cameos on Full House and Married with Children. Trust me, her and Pat Sajak's IMDb pages do not look the same. Now, while it's true that Vanna White has made a lot of money outside of Will of Fortune, that she would make that much less than Pat Sajak is insulting. Maybe they shouldn't make the same, but considering how she helped the Will of Fortune brand become a fixture in pop culture, there shouldn't be that big of a pay disparity between her and Pat Sajak. Does Vanna White make more than the average person? Of course, but that's not the point either. It's not about what Vanna White makes compared to what a toll booth operator makes or a teacher or a scientist. It's about what she makes relative to what the peers in her specific industry make. It's not many women who have been on television every day for 41 years and built their brand the way that Vanna White did. I personally think she should have taken over as host instead of Ryan Seacrest, but that's a fucking unbothered for another day. Until then, get your money, Vanna. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. 
Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Fry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of 7, 5, and 21. Wave goodbye to 45. Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word. How I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for 